And welcome back once again to Rounding the Earth, or more specifically, the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the more socio-political issues that have come out of it. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, and YouTube to join a burgeoning research community and to help us, as I love to say, unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, and writer editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And I will be your host for today. But I never do it alone. Please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the stream, Matthew Crawford. Good afternoon, Matthew. Hey, Liam. How you doing? I'm well. Thanks. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Now, when you woke up this morning, would you say you were feeling more on the communist side of the spectrum or the fascist side of the spectrum? <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, 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 are we just talking about like which side of the bed I was on? <laughs> yes, quite literally. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, about like that. One or the other. I don't know. Yeah, I hear you. I, 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 I try to avoid I try to avoid being uh, being on that bed. Mmm, I like what you just did there. Well, that's a great way to introduce us to our topic for today, which we'll get into in a sec. But first, let us introduce our guests for today's show. Please welcome Tessa Fights Robots and Matthew Evans Cockle. Greetings, lady and gentleman. Hello. Well, it is kind of hard to match your tone. You're so perfect. <laughs> <laughs> You always catch me. We schedule these. We schedule these right after I've had my coffee. So that was on purpose, Tessa. <laughs> no, that was excellent. That was wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. It's an honor. It's every time I'm I'm on your podcast. It's it's delightful. So thank you. Yes, thank you for joining us. This is the second time we've had Tessa. Um, now, on the off chance that people still don't know who you are, do you want to give just a very brief introduction? Uh, thank you for, again, the wonderful intro. I just keep admiring it. So I am Tessa Lena. I go by Tessa Fights Robots. I am a musician also, just like Liam. And I've been actually making art and writing about kind of what transpired in 2020 visibly for some years prior to 2020. So now I have no topic for the art because now what's the point of saying, hey, people, let's not make it happen. It's already happening. And... Uh, uh, I grew up in Moscow. I was born and raised in Moscow, which offers a convenient background for the topic of today's conversation, of course, about communism and fascism and all those things. And I spent most of my adult life in the United States. I did many, many things here. I had a very dramatic bio altogether, I guess. That's been my educational path. And 
So when 2020 happened, I right away saw that it was kind of more than a little suspicious. And I opened my mouth in April 2020 officially. I, I opened a Substack and I started talking about it because, and it was a little scary at first because I lost the camaraderie, maybe not the camaraderie, but as many of us, like many of us, I, I lost the common grounds with so many dear people in my life and including in musician activism world who all went with the COVID narrative and I did not. So nonetheless, I felt it was important and the rest is history. So we are in this, we are in this together, as they say. Yeah, we absolutely time, are. Every time you um, you introduce yourself as a musician, uh, it, it's almost jarring to me because when I started reading your writing, um, you know, maybe two-ish years ago, uh, you know, uh, you were already into writing about the things that you write about now. And I always think of you more as a, um, like a philosophical commentator. Uh, like like uh, you, you stepped into that very easily, very naturally. Um, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Well, I mean, I, I guess I've been writing and doing music at the same time since I was a kid. So it's easy. Plus, you know, the times call for it. The times call for any possible genre and shape or form of resisting the communism slash fascism slash the great reset slash. Well, we'll get into that. Yeah, that's a slash lot of whatever we're actually dealing with. Well, right. let's use that opportunity. Matthew Evans Cockle, do you mind introducing yourself to our audience and uh, explaining a little bit what brings you to this conversation? Sure. Um, I guess I'm a bit of a literary dilettante. I've spent something like 17 years at different universities um, from SFU through Karlova University in Prague and Basel University and University of Constance and the University of Paris one and the EPHE and then finally UBC. Um, and just pursuing uh, one thread after another. So I look at, um, I guess I'm a specialist in Renaissance and Reformation studies um, and spurred by things like Erasmian humanism that look back towards the early church um, but I also have a background in um, the philosophical underpinnings of some of the uh, Muslim mystical schools, so Sufism. And uh, but um, I, with all of those years spent in universities, um, somehow I've managed to maintain a rather uh, marked uh, anti-conformist attitude, which is. Uh, hardly in keeping with what we've seen from our universities that have done uh, every manner of pirouette to stay in lockstep with uh, the pharmaceutical interests driving the COVID. Do you think that was natural or organized? Like, do you think it was the nature of the way the universities were evolving? Or do you think that it was uh, organized for some sort of specific event? I think that the that uh, universities like um, like our our governments um, in in liberal democracies in 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 the West, but also but all around the world, uh, have been uh, trained in recent decades to uh, they've been trained to sort of do the bidding of the various 
industry interests that that um, wait in the in the shadows. And one of the ways that they've been trained is federal funding and right, has been cut, making them more increasingly dependent upon private funding. And so the, the amount of leverage that that corporations are able to sort of put on on these public institutions is has really become significant without people on the ground really seeing it at all. And students don't, that's not something that's noticeable to a student coming into a university. Yeah, uh, you know, the other day I was um, uh, thumbing through various uh, NIH grants and I thought, you know, the NIH really looks, it, once you start looking at the books, it, it very much looks like an arm of the DOD more than a health agency. Uh, you know, certainly at times, but with gain of function research, with all the bioweapons research and everything else, um, and and I think that there that there is a, a certain amount of the the university system that that certainly knows that, um, but that it's not uh, it's not talked about, and I think a, a lot of people are sort of kept out of the conversation in order to to keep that moving along. I, I don't want to monopolize here, but just very quickly about that, I think that one of our big problems with the university is. is we encourage specialization. And what you end up with is you end up with people who are whose uh, their academic interests and their careers are, are very focused and anything outside of their particular career or professional purview, they're not paying attention to anymore. And so they're, even though they're specialists, they're ill-informed even about contiguous domains within their specialty. So, you know, they they're going to they're going to defer to the experts and none of the experts have any kind of coordinated sense, coordinated sense of what's going on. I am just sharing an image here from an article that I wrote uh, a few months ago. Um, talking about uh, specialization as being anti-education, kind of being like locked in a maze. And everybody kind of knows they're part of the maze. To them, that part is not conspiracy theory, but we get that Gelman amnesia where they don't really know um, that, you know, what they hear from the other parts of the, the mazes are a little bit, a um, little bit bullshit sometimes. So <laughs> yeah, that, that is a very graceful definition, Matthew, a little bit bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe more than a little bit. <laughs> so here, so I want to introduce our, our specific framing of how we're going to, the, the reason we've come together on this topic today. But first, I just want to share, um, I had the glorious glory, the opportunity to, uh, for the first time, um, this uh, Thanksgiving weekend up here in Canada to meet in person, Matthew, for the first time. We had worked together uh, with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance on a number of projects, um, one of which I'll mention at the, the very end. Um, but this was a picture of us uh, in this beautiful sunny day looking out. If you see the coastline behind us, at the very tip there, that is the University of British Columbia, UBC, where uh, actually both Matthew and I went, although I was there significantly more briefly than him. Um, so I just wanted to share this. This was a very, very lovely time. Um, yeah, it looks like and, a beautiful day. Oh yeah, beautiful area. Uh, yeah, it, it, we were very lucky. We uh, there, there's an area. It's a, a seawall that you can walk uh, from one side of where I live, West Vancouver, all the way to the other end, and we just it was wonderful. So anyway, just wanted to share that. But today, so I have here a pile of books that were supposed to be 
in a specific order and didn't wind up being so. So I'm just going to run through a few of these. So this here is the Communist Manifesto. Some may be familiar with by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Um, You're bringing me right back to my childhood. I'm being triggered right now. Thank you. <laughs> I, I think this was this was required reading in the Soviet Union. If I'm, I mean, yeah, absolutely, many essays. Yeah. Well, let's hold on to that thought. I want to hear more about that. Um, and then, okay, so that's communism. Let's see what else do we got here. Well, then you you can go back in time, and you have Hannah Arendt's uh, "The Origins of Totalitarianism." talking about Nazi Germany and whatever the heck that was. Was it fascism? Was it socialism? Let's find out. Um, then you get uh, moving forward, jumping ahead. I finally finished my copy of The Psychology of Totalitarianism by Matthias Desmet. So slightly different ism there. Then, But he references, uh, he references Hannah Arendt's work quite a bit. Then you get whatever the heck some people in the United States think is going on. You've got American crisis by former disgraced, perhaps governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, basically yelling at the Donald Trump Republican wing for being extreme right fascist, something or other. Then you have, um, uh, let's see, the man without a face, the unlikely rise of Vladimir Putin. And this provides uh, a slightly more favorable view, I think on, on the current Russian president, but, the Soviet Union versus Russia. Now, what is what? Who knows what's going on? And then lastly, COVID-19 and the global predators. We are the prey by Peter and Ginger Bregan, who um, specifically, I'll mention, do a lot of uh, uh, blaming China, um, which, of course, is a communist um, uh, regime right now. So that is all to say. These are all, I think, very relevant publications. I don't know if there are any... Oh, actually, I'll end with this one. The Great Reset and the War for the World by Alex Jones. And he takes a more totalitarian view on things. But this is why we're here. There are all these words. We've got fascism, communism, socialism, totalitarianism. Um, well, and whatever you want to call Western capitalism. Exactly. Which is, which is uh, it's, it, it's not the capitalism described by... Um, uh, oh goodness, my my memory's failing me. Uh, uh, Scottish uh, economist. Long COVID. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, you... long pandemic, long pandemic. Um, uh, so you know, uh, I guess the the Marxist uh, sort of people and uh, came up with the word capitalism as kind of a pejorative to describe um, the Western system, but then. Um, um, but uh, Adams, uh, uh, he's the, like really famous. We should know this. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, my entire life, uh, you know, the past 35 years, I would have known off the top of my head Adam Smith, <laughs> yeah, uh, the Adam Wealth Smith, of Nations, right. yeah, um, yeah. the Wealth of Nations, and, and, uh, you know, the uh, people who, um, uh, people who think of capitalism as freedom, you know, point toward an, a more Adam Smith. Um, sort of approach uh, where, you know, the economy is out there and you interface with it, um, but it is not sort of like a systemic thing that is imposed on you. Um, right. So, you know, we have all these these labels and and these labels wind up almost forming uh, their own nations, I, I think even more so than the actual nations that we name. That is Potentially. 
and um, and and just to finish off the intro as to why we're here, and then I want to really open it up. What what happened uh, with um, w- uh, with Matthew and I? So up here in Canada, in particular, the reason this is timely and inspired uh, me to suggest this particular conversation is we've just had our uh, leadership race for the Conservative Party of Canada because following the whole trucker movement. Uh, the Freedom Convoy, Aaron O'Toole, the former conservative leader, basically had to step down because it was so poorly handled in the eyes of his supporters. So anyway, we've just had that race. As a part of that race, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, we host guests of all political um, you know, affiliations, of all scientific beliefs, of all areas of, of specialty. And some of those that we had were uh, candidates for that conservative leadership um, role, including Roman Bobber, um, Leslin Lewis, um, and various other similar folks. And what happened is I noticed this, and Matthew definitely noticed this, that there was this kind of easy deferral, you know, to, well, our problems are a new form of communism or socialism. And those two were the largest, you know, the mo- it felt the most frequently repeated labels, as we've sort of been alluding to. And Matthew Dr. Matthew had the perfect observations to make, uh, perhaps uh, factual corrections to make, but also just broadly speaking, ways of sort of contextualizing what these words mean and why maybe they're not totally the best uh, or the most accurate to encompass our current situations. So that's that's what led us here. Tessa, I cut you off. What were you going to say? <laughs> oh, I was going to say so much. I apologize in advance, but there's so much to say. I mean, this issue, well, maybe we'll develop it throughout the conversation, but there are three ways in which I would like to address it from my end. One is historical in a technical sense of it and what happened with the Bolsheviks and the the whole interaction between the Bolsheviks and the Wall Street, which is something that Sutton wrote about. That's one topic. And then how essentially capitalism and communism or socialism, they kind of work together for for one go in a way. But then there's a deeper philosophical layer and then there's also practical layer. And I would like to start with a deeper philosophical layer. Uh, Out of all those terms, I think all of them are kind of missing the park. There's a linguistic framework that I think is really brilliant that addresses all of that. And I keep bringing it up in, in my writings and occasionally maybe I even did when we did the interview last time, uh, there's a native philosopher and intellectual, Stephen Newcomb, and he spent many, many, many years of his life writing about what he calls the system of domination. And of course, being native, he writes about it largely from the perspective of, you know, the view from the shore, as he as he calls it. And but the, the thing is, it is so brilliant and so all-encompassing because. The system of domination covers the mindset that is socialism and capitalism and fascism and all sorts of nationalism, nationalistic ideas that are also domineering. And because we as human beings have lived with this mindset of the necessity of domination for at least a few thousand years, we've internalized it. So when we fight with each other, and it is extremely visible in the freedom community, and it's breaking my heart. I have to say it's breaking my heart because now there's a gazillion splits. People are fighting over talking points. And that is, I think, the most 
toxic thing we can do, even if we are sincere, even if we are absolutely sincere, thinking that those other guys are just not getting it, we should, you know, point it out and make sure that everybody sees that they're not getting it. I think that is the way to the toilet for all of us. And we'll end up in the same camp if we continue acting this way, regardless, the right ones, the wrong ones, the, we all end up in the same camp. And that's important. But the interesting thing is that, and I've noticed that, and I've, I'm, I'm warning it, but at the same time, I, I get it because we all come with our baggage in our culture. So, for example, it is very easy to blame representatives of the domination system that are currently trying to kill us. Yeah. It's very, very easy to feel pain and to feel indignant, to feel angry. That's natural. That's not illogical. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with pointing it out that this type of domination is horrible. But then at the same time, people do keep the bond with the type of domination that protects them, even if it hurts somebody else. And I'm not talking about it from the some kind of high ground, moral, theoretical bullshit nonsense. Like I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not saying I'm better or smarter or anything like that. Like I happen to have lived under different systems, very different isms. And I've been observant in the emotional sense and intellectual sense ever since I was a kid. And in my lifetime, systems changed dramatically in, in Russia. So dramatically, they went from one ism to the opposite ism and nothing changed fundamentally. Lots of things changed actually for the better for a while, significantly for the better, but fundamentally it stayed the same. And so what that framework offers that I, I mean, I, I keep talking as Stevens, Stevens framework, the system of domination, what it offers is a view for all of us to look back, 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 to, to go back thousands of years and see that, in fact, human beings did not live with this mindset forever. We spent millions of years living differently, not perfectly. Of course, there were wars. Of course, there was rivalry and envy and these are all human qualities. But as a principle of organizing society, it was not that. Then at some point, human beings came up Maybe it was a natural civilizational process. Maybe it was like a teen, teenage phase where, you know, how if you're an individual person, when you're a kid, you're relatively pure, and then you listen to adults, and, and then you're a teenage, and everything just goes rah, 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 like, I know everything, all adults are stupid, and I'm going to like, tell everybody what to do. Maybe we're going through this phase as a collective humankind, where we're just, you know, beating our chest and trying to establish ourselves and do all that. So maybe we'll naturally mature out of it, which is my hope. I don't know how long it takes. But for example, in the context of that freedom, freedom movement and fighting the Great Reset, which the Great Reset is horrible, whether we call it communist or fascist or totalitarian, it's all of that. And it is horrible. It is completely abusive. And I, like, I've been writing about it forever. I wrote this whole Great Reset for Dummies two years ago, because at that point, very few people were talking about it. Some were, but very few. And I wanted to explain it. Like it was a desperate outcry that the writing that I did. But here's the thing. So for example, people say that, okay, the globalists are awful, they're evil, and they are, I agree. But then they say, but the founding fathers were awesome. But then if you look at the founding fathers, then, oh, thank you, then, 
they were following the same principle, except they were applying it for a different to a different demographic. And if, for example, you read the and St Stephen Newcomb actually pointed out to me uh, letters written by Thomas Jefferson, secret private letters. So speaking of conspiracy theory, how he planned to essentially eliminate native populations and get them either killed or assimilated. So there were things like we should surround their outposts with shops or, or you know surround their reservation with outposts sorry and then hopefully they'll get into debt and then when they get into debt more prominent of them will get into debt then it'll compel them to part with the land and then eventually their history will be uh over most happy for themselves i mean it is kind of like you own nothing you'll be happy but it's applied to a different demographic and then it says but most importantly we should cultivate their love so in other words that is Klaus Schwab technology, that is Klaus Schwab principle, but because it is applied to a completely different group of people and because people do have to feel something sacred. So, and I'm not pointing fingers at all because I've observed the generation of my grandparents going through a curve with a Sovietism, completely different ism, right? But to them, it was sacred. They, they believed that Lenin was a hero that Marx and Engels, that their, their ideas were beautiful. They were raised, they were born after the Bolshevik revolution. They were brainwashed completely into the communist ideas and they sacrificed so much for that. So on the human spiritual level, that was their sacred. So when they got old and then the state and the media said, oh, by the way, that was all untrue. So everything you fought in the war for, everything that you went through tremendous hardship for, that you did such tremendous sacrifices for, that was all untrue. They, you were lied to, time to move on, and you know now we're going to do capitalism. They did not accept, like many of them, believed the socialist communist ideas nonetheless, because that was that, that's how they spent most of their life. To me, as a kid, as a very small kid, I observed that betrayal and that complete flip of what is supposed to be sacred. So their sacred was taken away from them. I was heartbroken for them. That was one of the things that shaped me and that helps me right now to deal with people of all sorts of ideologies. So taking it back to the United States and right now in globalists versus American uh, you know, foundational ideas, American foundational ideas, I am thankful for the constitution. I mean, we are really holding the ground here because of many things implemented in America. I'm grateful for that. I love this land. But also for in intellectual integrity, I think it's important to acknowledge that what, what, what was done was the same principle of domination, except it was done to the original people of this land. And I am thinking if the founding fathers were alive today, would they be collaborating with Klaus Schwab, rather, because that's that's the principle if we are all now in that position of the indigenous people. So it is such a complex thing. And pointing fingers is the last thing that I think helps us, because if somebody is basing their ideas on the sacredness of the founding fathers, well, I can have intellectual disagreements, but I respect the principle, I respect that spiritual drive for freedom and for bodily autonomy and for being respected it's just that the words are very confusing and i think and i'm, I'm going to end my ted talk in a second let me <laughs> put a cap it so thing is 
I think that without giving people a viable feeling of being respected, it's cruel to take away the talking points because we all primarily want to be respected. So unless there is something where it's like a, a mechanism, a, a manner in which we're given respect for who we are, for our soul, for our spirit, people are going to cling to any talking point that is convenient, that protects the demographic. You cannot moralize people out of it. You cannot say, oh, you're a horrible person because this and that, because look at whatever genocide. It's not how it works. So love is the only way. And thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that, that was incredible. And I think part of the issue is a basic understanding of uh, definitions. And I would uh, very much like to hear, Matthew, can you define for us in whatever way you feel is accurate and appropriate, what is communism? What is socialism? And what is fascism? And then any others, don't limit yourself to those if you feel uh, there are others that complete sort of a basic spectrum of what we're trying to now discuss. I can certainly make an effort. I, I think I'm gonna sidestep the task of, of, of giving a, a clear definition um, just because I don't think that the, I don't think that, that the, there is no, there is no entity that is communism active in the world. What we saw in Stalinist, uh, in, in the Stalinist era, has very little to do with what we might read in Marx and Engels. And what, uh, you know, even capitalism has very little to do with Adam Smith and Keynes. So we do tend to get sidetracked a great deal. And also with when people say, well, that's fascist. Well, fascism applies to a certain era in Italy, just as National Socialism, Nazism applies to, you know, the, the, the political era coming out of Weimar between the wars. Um, and I think that Tessa has really sort of, she's put her finger on something with this, um, with the idea of uh, a system of domination, and that to speak about these things in those terms allows us to see how these systems have come to do many of the same things. And one of the reasons is that they have been manipulated in order to do those things. Uh, we could take, so sidestepping the question of communism and socialism just for a moment, we could take the, the example of early Christianity. So, You've got in your first century, you have Jesus and then following his, this socialist, um, somewhat anarchistic uh, Jewish rabbi who may have been a carpenter, so from the working class who may have spoken Greek or Aramaic, possibly Hebrew. And then later you have Paul or Saul, who changes his name to Paul, and who is every bit the troublemaker that Jesus was. 
but also a master of manipulating the imperial language, turning it on its head, applying it to the humiliated rabbi, right? And thereby undermining the kind of cult, the imperial cult of the Roman Empire. Now, Christianity catches on in this first century because they're out there doing a lot of good work. And certainly the historical figure, Jesus, isn't calling it Christianity. Um, he's Jewish, and all of his disciples are Jewish. Uh, they are a splinter group of Judaism. You could say they're some sort of socialist faction of Judaism, right? They're certainly interested in public works, right? Um, helping the poor, helping the sick. The name Christianity comes out of a, a sort of prank. They've hung, it's a Greek-speaking area of the Roman Empire, and they've hung a sign on him that says, here's the Christos, here's the king of the Jews. And it's it's a, a point of, uh, it's to mock, to mock him. So Paul is going to take this and he's going to use it literally. And he's going to talk about, you know, this figure who has been mocked and humiliated by the empire is in fact the true sort of pre-existent and eternal king, right? Now, so this is a kind of revolutionary propaganda that Paul manages, and uh, and it and it takes hold because what it's doing is it's exalting the qualities embodied by this helper of the poor, who got himself uh, terribly abused by the uh, by the empire uh, for sacrificing himself for values that we all can can share the basic values of of empathy and you want a beautiful world of beautiful people you've got to sacrifice your interests in the present to sort of try and make that happen now it doesn't take long before this this upstart uh splinter religion catches on uh and and suddenly the authority figures in the Roman Empire can see that this is good crowd control. And it's going to become the official religion. And when it does that, it's going to change, right, significantly. And so suddenly, somebody in power is going to be playing with this, with this religion as though it were one of the pieces on a chessboard. And so to go back to Tessa's uh, discussion you know, you're not dealing with the piece on the chessboard. You're really dealing with the chess player. And the chess player is intent upon dominating other human beings. And so in a way, what we want to do is get away from all of the terms and get back to sort of very basic questions of, of empathy. Like um, Alex Comfort has a great phrase in his book, The Novel in Our Times, where he says the main ethical value is a sense of biological human responsibility against death and against power. Basic empathy. And so democracy, to the extent that it really is what it says it is in, it, in its name, etymologically, demos, people, and krati, rule, the rule of the people, the basic value behind that is we are in a, we share a situation. 
We all live towards our own deaths. We're all aware of it. And we all live faced with sort of the difficulty of the external world that imposes scarcity upon us. And so human community, you could say, well, it's established by domination, but clearly the main thing it's established by is cooperation. And so if we look at big corporations, we can see that they do not run in a democratic manner. Of course, no one thinks they do. But now what happens when you have these enormously powerful corporations and they align themselves with government, they partner with government through these public-private partnerships, and now the government is supposed to be democratic, but it's being run by industry that is intentionally the furthest you could get from democracy. Now, take it one step further and you get the WEF, you get Klaus Schwab, and we can watch him as he addresses the, the members of the audience members in the WEF and the presenters. He, he addresses them with the term, your excellencies, which is a clear translation of the Greek ariste, the excellent, as in aristocracy, as in the most powerful, the most excellent should rule. And so between public-private partnerships that have been going on for decades now, increasingly in these transnational trade agreements that allow corporations to escape the national regulations that our democracies have set up to protect the people, right? when we combine that with, with the sort of drive towards the, this idea that corporations will do a better job of organizing our society for us, and then these enormous sort of uh, collaborative uh, efforts on the part of the billionaire elite to push the, the WEF's agenda, right, ahead of the agenda of all nations, right, so that Klaus Schwab can, can literally boast I believe it was in a 2017 speech in front of the, what is it, John F. Kennedy School of Business, um, where he says, and what we're really proud of is that we penetrate the cabinets. And he boasts yeah. about having some type of control or influence over more than half of Trudeau's cabinet. Now, this should be concerning to everybody. And when we, what happens, we get bogged down in questions of, well, are you right or are you left? Are you, are you Republican or are you Democrat? Are you, is this a socialist thing? Is this a, are we faced with the threat of communism? I think that really the huge, the huge takeaway from the pandemic has to be that our public health response, a combination of government and public health has been orchestrated from above by private interests, by corporate interests. And it has not been in our best interest at all, right? They've done a huge amount of damage and we need to take a look at that and do what we can to prevent this from getting worse. Because if there's one thing that's missing from their modus operandi, from their mode of operations, it's empathy, right? For them, the end justifies the means. And that type of thinking causes a lot of damage. And the people who suffer are, they're at the bottom and middle of the totem pole. And that's where most people are. And that's not a beautiful world. That's a world of abuse. 
but sorry, I've sidestepped all the terminology kind no. of on purpose. You no, answered the question that was needed to be answered. That was the correct question to be answering, as far as I'm concerned. And I, I liked where you went going back to um, the inception of Christianity, um, which, you know, it, it may not, um, it, there are obviously many historical and institutional changes in that evolution. But um, uh, when you say, when you talk about like Jesus helping the poor, um, I, I sort of think of it as Jesus combining the poor with the non-poor. I, I, I think of the the Sermon on the Mount, you have these, these educated Jewish leaders, community leader type of personalities. And, and Jesus prepares them to go down, you know, um, they are the blessed, uh, you know, and I don't remember the wording, um, but, um, you know, essentially he's preparing them for the fact that our, our whole purpose here is to unite the fabric of society because this domination game is unnatural. And that's what's so radical about, uh, you know, Jesus's activities and, and plans is, is you know, uh, compassion, you know, our compassion for them, our, you know, our combination with them, this raises us all up together. And this is how um, people can can maintain strength in the midst of this domination game. And and here we are, you know, I don't I'm going to call it three Reichs later. Um, you know, Reich meaning realm. And I guess that was uh, that was named after it, it was the first Reich that I guess technically the first Reich, the way it's termed is a little bit later. Um, I, I'm not sure about the exact historical origins, but but you might call that Reich Zero, uh, it, you know, at the time that, that you know, Jesus was walking around. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, now we're in this modern day situation, and I think that all the labels fail. Uh, I think the labels fail because it is the same domination game, and I think that it's more connected than people than people realize whether we're talking about Western capitalism or or communism or fascism or anything else, it 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 probably I, I sometimes refer to it as a, as you know Western capitalists as well it it really is fundamentally more like a fascist system. But um, no no matter how we 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 you know use these labels or abuse these labels, um, it, it is true that uh, the corporations you know extra governmental extra national government, maybe that's that's the better way to say it. Uh, extra national governance really has more control over the national governance and therefore more control over the community level and 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 over the people. And it's happened at, at enough levels that it's become an invisible hierarchy that um, that makes it virtually impossible for empathy to to still exist because if if people were cohesive within a community, um, that would defy the interests of, you know, who, whoever was at the top. So they have to destroy every relationship, every connection. Oh, every level. That is so true. And I want to say special thanks to Matthew. Well, to both Matthews, I guess. <laughs> so that, but that, that was such an excellent talk and uh, early Christianity. That was that was really wonderful. And uh, speaking of the extra national entities, something that just occurred to me as Matthew, as you were talking, uh, in the history of my people, you know, well, Russians before before Russians even existed. So there's a certain storyline where, and I think it's actually common for many, many nations, where the leaders were siding with other leaders, maybe with leaders who were a little cooler or a little more influential than them at the time, at the cost, uh, and they were throwing their own people under the bus. For example, when uh, 
the leader many centuries ago decided to convert the Slavs to a more civilized religion. So because why, why was that conversion necessary? That was uh, about 11 centuries ago. So in the mind of the ruler, the conversion was necessary so that the ruler can be more hip with other rulers of that same level who, who already made that, made that move. They were already practicing one of the world religions. The Slavs were still pagan and that was not cool enough. That, was, that, that made the leader look bad and that didn't give the leader political advantages. So they decided, so what are we going to do? And they were picking between two types of Christianity, Judaism and Islam. And that tells you right there that any talking point about, oh, only this religion is true because it's really true in the spiritual religious sense, that it's nonsense. Because if they were picking, if they truly believed, for example, that Christianity or Eastern Christianity, which they ended up picking, if they truly believed that that was the only route to finding the mysterious, to connecting to the divine, they would not be considering Islam or Judaism or, or another, uh, or, you know, the Vatican religion. They would just not consider that, but they were. And the reason why they chose Eastern Christianity, at least as the rumor has it, or as the, you know, the story has it, is that, well, the Islam they rejected because of the drinking. So to Russians not drinking or to, to Slavs back then, it wasn't Russian. So it was not really an option to quit drinking. So then uh, I guess Judaism, because the, there was the, the whole you know battle going with the Khazars and it was not a good relationship between the Slavic people and the Khazars. So they kind of ended up rejecting it for that reason. And then they chose Eastern Christianity over Western Christianity because the churches were so magnificently beautiful. That was aesthetically appealing and they are beautiful but then then they said and now everybody converts or else and that's the story of conversion historically same thing by the way happened in tibet when they were forced to convert to buddhism in the seventh century again by the power of the king who wanted to be hip with his fellow china and india who were more civilized at the time and again, there was a bloodshed, different religion, completely different, different part of earth, different set of talking points, same scenario. So, and we can see that right now in the world so prominently with the horror that is happening, you know, in my neck in the woods, where again, so much of it is about individual people in positions of power trying to elevate themselves. And so they make alliances, they calculate, will this emperor help me better? Or will that emperor help me better? Which emperor should I align with? And then based on that, they select their talking points and then they say that they're for this or for that or for democracy or for Russia or for the West. But that's all talking points. On their level, I believe, I might be wrong, but that's what it feels like to me. And then people pay the price with blood and death and suffering and enslavement in many, many, many cases in history. And I think the problem here on the psychological level is that we as human beings are conditioned to in some way associate with our with our mobster, the mobster that protects mm -hmm. us. So when people say, oh, we invaded Iraq or we invaded whatever, we who? The State Department? The segment of that, of Stephen Newcomb's system of domination that is specific with our representative of the system of domination. Who, with who? And 
So even in discussing right now the whole horror with Russia and Ukraine that is heart breaking my heart, all of it from every end. It's but geopolitically, it is this that we geopolitics people who run geopolitics do not care about us, any of us, that is for sure. And if only we'll learn to side with people like us everywhere, whatever, Christian, Muslim, pagan, Buddhist, black, white, purple, dotted, who cares? I mean, we all have our ancestries. We all have our beauty in our cultures. Siding with the mobsters is not a winning game. I mean, it's a short-term winning because our mobsters have the power to maybe protect us from those other mobsters or, or at least they want us to see it as a short-term game so that there's like yeah. a prisoner's dilemma involved where exactly. everyone feels like they have to make a move and they have to take uh they have to um uh support uh a side two two weeks to flatten ukraine that oh goodness such a horrible such a horrible oh god situation breaks my heart yeah, I, and I, I want to, this, this discussion has crossed right into my family history, and I just want to briefly introduce people to the Dukabors. Tessa, are you familiar with the Dukabors? Dukabors? Yeah. No. So the Dukabors are, I know I'm still, I've mentioned this to Matthew uh, Crawford, and, and I don't think I've had this conversation with. Uh, 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 now I know the word. Yes, I know about it. Yes. So they, they, this is my family. They were, as far as I understand, they were a group of, uh, let's see if I can find the, they were Russian. Uh, I think it goes very far back. I'm just going to read this real quick. The origin of the Dukabors dates back to the 1600s and 1700s in Russia, when a number of Christian religious sects began to form. The name Dukabor means spirit wrestlers. People outside the sect felt that the Dukabors wrestled against the Holy Spirit in the church, while the Dukabor elders maintained that they wrestled with and for the Spirit of God. Their motto was toil and a peaceful life, and it was reflected in their simple ways, communal living, and hard work. Frequently persecuted for their religious, social, and political beliefs, the situation came to a head under Tsar Nicholas II, who demanded an oath of allegiance from all his subjects. The Dukabors, led by Peter Vasilievich, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, Verigan, refused. In an act of defiance in 1895, they refused to serve in the military and burned all their weapons. This led to even more repression starting in 1898. and 1899, they began to leave Russia. Many sought refuge in Canada and initially settled in Saskatchewan. So that's that was my family. And I actually know that Peter Verigan, um, I know... Uh, his descendant, also named Peter Verrigan, and his daughter Katie and I went to school together, same grade. So this was this was my family, and as uh, both all all three of you described things uh, that that this embodies this this specific this is one example out of many communities uh, that you know tying together the the Christian element and the formation of these various sects, and then the requirement by our mobster, our mobster, quote unquote that you swear your oath of allegiance to them because don't worry, we'll protect you. But if you don't pay, then who knows what's gonna happen. Um, and that's why, this this is why Canada's situation really is starting to feel personal to me and starting to really bother me because when I understand and when I hear, as you guys are describing, there's great historical context to 
some groups really are just trying to do their thing and do it in a way that supports anyone else who wants to do it with them. Not in any kind of ham-fisted way that requires weapons, but simply living the life, you know, wrestling with and for the spirit of God or the universe or however you describe it. And this was a group that wasn't limited in their thoughts. They, in fact, the Quakers and the Mennonites held a fundraiser for them to pay for the boat over to Canada. And I almost cry every time I think about that. You know, I was going to mention the Mennonites. Um, this is uh, this community, um, the Duke of Wars. I mean, this is this is one of uh, there's probably dozens, but um, a lot of the strength of North America and the the foundation. North America probably has the the best farming communities in the world in terms of um, sort of cohesiveness combined with the technologies of working the land without the need for you know. Um, poisons and modern technologies um, to, to a significant degree. Um, th that, that's an enormous strength of, of North America, uh, an enormous basis for, for economy. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, my sister-in-law is uh, a Mennonite um, Ukrainian, uh, I believe. Um, and uh, there, there were a lot of uh, farmers who came into Ukraine and, and Russia also that uh, migrated uh, eastward from Europe. We usually think of, um, you know, sort of westward migration with uh, the Mongolians and, and different factions. But um, but North America soaked up all these different communities. And these are these are what people don't understand about, like who who lives in the flyover states right outside of the 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 big globalist uh, cities that we you know, that that seem like modern civilization or something like that. And um, it, it, it's interesting to watch sort of corporate media try to blame those people for the ills of the world. <laughs> right. But in reality, I wonder, Matthew and Tessa, do you think, or in your experience, these so-called flyover state people and the people maybe who live in rural Canada, are these people who have, and it is not going to be true 100%, but, but is, it, is it possible that part of the reason these are looked down on by, by such elites is because they don't think in the same terms of you're either in this camp or that camp, or, um, you know, have they moved beyond in the way that Matthew, you were articulating, we need to stop thinking in these kind of terms and return to basic empathy. Is there a correlation there? Or, or is there some other reason why, you know, the sort of people who live in flyover States or rural Canada are for some reason a threat? I, I do think that there's a corporate fight for the farms in the farmland and that um, and that also I think that the Republican Party um, tries to woo as much of those communities as possible. And I think that that's almost an open door, like a like a Trojan horse into, um, you know, bringing them into the, the corporate farming world. And uh, I hope they have uh, enough resilience to resist as much as possible uh, and, and just do their thing as communities. But um um, I have something, I have a remark to what you said earlier, Matthew. Well, Duhaborci, which is this the, the, this community that you're talking about, and by the way, uh, Liam, thank you for the story, that, that was very touching. Uh, they, you could say that they're somewhat similar to the Amish people, right, in, in, the, in the vibe and the approach to life. I mean, they were back then in Russia, that is. And, but the interesting thing, that there, there was a story recently where the Amish farmer uh, who was feeding 4,000 people, was raided by the FBI, and they told him to stop farming, and he wasn't even using any pesticides or fertilizers, so there was really nothing 
to formally blame him for as far as this whole climate change, which is a whole other topic. Was but, this where they went and poured the dye into the raw milk? Uh, uh, like a several year legal battle? One. So they had a problem with this Amish guy feeding 4,000 people, according to him, at least according to his interview. And that is such a telling story for our times. And then, by the way, the Bolsheviks specifically, I remember learning about it when a small kid, they were uh, blaming the peasants for being a little bit backward, not sufficiently politically conscious, not so much supportive of the Bolshevik revolution and communism and all that. And of course, it was framed as a drawback that was there. That was their drawback that was their shortcoming but naturally of course why would the peasants support why they would even care for the communist revolution they were they had the land they had the cattle they had things to grow they really didn't need anybody to come and tell them how to do that so they were not big fans at all and for that the bolsheviks blamed them as being kind of like downwits and well not really they didn't use that word but kind of backward not politically conscious enough and all that. So that's a common theme. I think when people want to steal somebody or want to steal power or land or resources, they, they always frame it as your ideas are backwards. So while you adopt our ideas, can we also please take your land and your belongings? And then you can get the idea. So, can I jump in here? Yeah. So, um, There, certainly, there's the attack on the backwardness of the of the of the agrarian communities, um, but there's also you know the use of religions or political movements. I mean, I'm, go I'm going to circle back to one of the points that I made before. Um, when we take, let's say, we take somebody like Trump. So Trump is a person who divides audiences. You've got those who are for and those who are against. So now if Trump says people should take hydroxychloroquine, then those people who are against Trump, they will now not listen to anybody who's advocating for the use of hydroxychloroquine on the basis that it's tainted by association with Trump. Now, this is one of the ways that that ideology and, and and sort of catchphrases and can be used to divide people so we can take things like uh, judaism christianity and, and islam and clearly you can sort of play the one group off against the other you can divide people in this way and you can focus on the ways in which these traditions are completely different um, at the same time you could look at these traditions as each one of them is an expression of the Abrahamic tradition. So whether you're Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, your tradition begins with Abraham and the God of Abraham. So ostensibly the same God. Now you've got what are essentially the sacred texts of three cultures that is three communities of people who identify using those sacred texts as an anchor point with your so certainly you your christianity grows out of judaism and then 
there's a further development as it as it becomes its own entity and there's pushback from both sides and there's this sort of each community excludes the other but in terms of basic human values we can consider these religions as rather than sort of from the, the point of view of denomination we can consider them from the point of view of human cornucopia so horn of plenty here we are at the banquet table and there are all these things there are all these these good things set out before us and it's the same with communism and socialism and capitalism when we're reading marx and engels and when we're reading uh you know keynes there are good things here for us right um and this leads to to the next i may be overcomplicating this but in each one of these instances we're looking at questions of conversion large con conversion on a large scale conversion of populations to one or another ideology or movement or school of thinking and to some extent this is a good thing when you think of what the sacred texts of the bible or uh or even the myths they're aiming at something they're aiming at personal transformation so conversion is something and it's something that it's something valuable and it's something that we want that is we all we want a beautiful world of beautiful people but none of us none of us really imagines that we're already that it's something we work on so the idea of self transformation is a positive thing but there's different there's a difference when the conversion is self motivated and it's something where you're fulfilling your potentiality as a full flourishing human being in community with others that's very different than when you are coerced into a conversion experience and i think that's the key these if we can take these systems each one of these systems has magnificent things to offer right and if we consider them from the point of view of a cornucopia a sort of horn of plenty that a banquet that set out before humanity and there's the possibility for real human conversion transformation into something absolutely beautiful right but that that transformation has to be without coercion and so what tessus says it's absolutely true we can look at buddhism we can look at christianity we can look at all these traditions and we can see atrocities but that doesn't mean that there aren't tremendous individuals involved in creating the the fundamental texts of these traditions and that those texts survive and they have something to offer us and it 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 really is possibly one of our great tasks is to sort of mine these resources and lay out the lay out the riches that they contain for one another and simply without adding the the coercion from arbitrary authority right it's each pathway has resources for a type of conversion for a type of development and those may be incredibly valuable right if we take out the the element of domination where we may end up with something the element simply of the human and i think that's worth that's worth holding on to and one last point 
going back to the Odyssey, I think we could take the the idea of so Odysseus is the the masterful sort of he's the early assassin. He's the early intelligencer. He's going to say to Neoptolemus, the son of Achilles, he's going to say, just give me yourself. Just give me yourself for one day. Do the things that I tell you to do. The ends justify the means here. Glory, glory awaits. And then ever after, you can be known as the most honorable among men. And Neoptolemus refuses because for Neoptolemus, what is important is not to appear honorable, but to be honorable, to live it. And that is that has to do with a kind of a sort of personal decision to embark on a kind of evolutionary process of fulfillment. Right. And that is a co conversion process. And he manages to resist the coercive strategies of Odysseus. And I think that's like a, that's a personal responsibility we all have, but it's something we can help other people with. And we can sort of simplify things and say, there are these, the masters of the game who want to dominate everything. That's simple enough. And the one principle they, they do not abide by is, is empathy. And when it comes down to it, they act without beauty, right? And as Agamemnon says to Polymester, pushed by Hecuba in, in that play by Euripides, he says, because you have acted without beauty, you must die without friendship. If we create an abusive world, we, right, we destroy all the good things we might enjoy otherwise. You know, as you were describing that, and you were describing these, um, these ancient or uh, seminal texts underlying these political ideologies or frameworks, it, it, it came to my mind that martial arts are very similar, where you have, for example, my practice is Taekwondo. And Taekwondo is a Korean martial art, literally meaning like military art form, um, uh, the art of the hand or the way of the hand and the foot. And that has some limitations to what Taekwondo then practices. It's very much based around the hand and the foot. Then you have others, uh, you know, Muay Thai making use of the shins, or uh, you could say even like Tai Chi being ways of movement, broadly speaking, and, and it goes on. And, and it's interesting because they are limitations in that you do have a framework within which you're supposed to operate and you're not supposed, there is a way to um, go outside the bounds of the martial art um, where it's, it's not incorrect or wrong broadly, but it is in the context of that art. However, you can then have, you know, there are often like people who do mixed martial arts uh, competitively um, often do quite literally. That's what mixed martial arts is, is, is combining different, um, uh, different, uh, forms of martial art, com often completely different, and then creating something composite. And so there's that. There's the element of you almost have set out a uh, formula that it seems to me doesn't strictly need to be adhered to uh, in the end, in, in that it sets out a set of guidelines within which you're meant to operate so that you can refine uh, or try out or experiment with different ways of approaching a thing.
And then at a certain point, you then choose to operate outside of those bounds, either just sort of extraneously or by then taking on a completely different way of thinking or way of trying something. And it's sort of like the scientific method in that sense, which I really enjoy. But then there's also, I'm realizing with martial arts, um, there's the, the, the very military nature of the premise. That, that's, what, that's what martial means. That's where Taekwondo came from is, is, is the Korean military. But empathy and courtesy integrity perseverance self-control indomitable spirit i just recited actually the the taekwondo oath that i had to say uh, every single time i walked into the studio um so you have this interesting and i think vital balance of war and ability to you know conduct war and the necessity of maintaining a sense of internal and external peace both in terms of how you conduct yourself and how you then attempt to uh, mold the earth around you. So I, I just, I wanted to express that, that thought process that was coming about because I think there's a lot of parallels there. Well, there are labels and then you have your individual journey. Yeah. And, uh, and, and more broadly speaking, uh, or, or more politically speaking, uh, then there are attempts at, at uh, leveraging those labels to right. try to, to not knock you out of an individual journey. Uh, and, and, you know, what, what I was thinking is what Matthew was describing. I, I thought toward maybe the youngest of these, you know, we're, we're, we can talk about religions and ideologies and to some degree, they serve for the domination game. They serve a similar purpose, um, e even though they're, they're, they're definitely different at, at some fundamental levels, but one of the newest ones is fascism. And, and uh, a couple of years ago, I went back and read the doctrine of fascism and it was interesting, you know, to see uh, there's, there's a lot there that I agree with. Right. And, and, but, you know, you look at the document and you think about what Italy became and what Mussolini's path was. And he, he was originally a socialist and he went off the war and came back saying, you know, we need to infuse socialism in the state in order to fight against, you know, the UK on the same level. You know, it, it, he wanted to use it to incorporate it into a, a domination game. Um, but a lot of the things that he said locally said, uh, you know, uh, all these people that are in Italy, and Italy was, I mean, the center of a lot of, you know, movement <laughs> in the world, right? So you had, you know, uh, North Africans, you had uh, Jews, you had Visigoths, you had, uh, you know, lots of empires bring in, uh, especially if they can grab talent from other empires, you know, the blacksmith, the, the, the horse handler, you know, any, anybody they can, you know, bring in. And, um, and, and he said, you're all Italians, we're all Italians. So let's go from there. Um, but then you wind, you know, he winds up shaking hands with the devil, uh, you know, um, kind of moving toward uh, Hitler's platform and even beginning to, you know, outgroup some of those people that he specifically ingrouped uh, previously. So you have labels. And if somebody can come in and leverage your personal journey due to those labels, then they have then they have brought you into their game of domination. And, uh, and it, you know, if, if we can all recognize that, it, it may be easier to maintain something that is a personal journey and forget about the isms and forget about, you know, the, and everything then, else that gets I, in the way. 
I totally forgot I had a way I was going to end my martial arts thought that, that just came back to mind, which is relevant to everything we've said, which and, and, is... And pardon if I interrupted. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I had forgotten, and then you're, you just reminded me. Martial arts, it's very different to be conscripted into, for example, the Korean military using this martial arts system. Very different to be conscripted than it is to pursue it as an individual journey. Uh, and as Dr. Matthew was saying, these paths of self-improvement must be non-coercive. So I realized once again, that's another example of if you if you do go mass recruit a whole bunch of, you know, young, uh, young men uh, and women to uh, use this martial art as a method of combat in your conflict, in your uh, battle that really is 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 yours and not theirs then you're going to wind up with a very different path of improvement than for those who voluntarily choose this path of self-improvement as, as an individual pursuit. That then, of course, fosters community. So it's also not isolationist. Um, anyway, I, I just oh, wanted that to... Was, that was extremely astute. And to address what everybody has said, uh, I think that the question of free will... Uh, is really significant and uh, because again for millions of years people they did have wars i mean the, the that boy battling spirit it's a part of human beings i mean that's what people do but but it was from what i know from everything that i know about all the cultures it was done with a different vibe meaning that you may kill your enemy but it's almost like you're playing a tough game. You still respect their spirit, which is very different from just massacre. And the question of free will is interesting because, again, in, in all the cultures, the whole idea, if people lived in nature, being living in a fantasy world while you are dealing with nature and, you know, like tigers who can eat you and things like that, if you start deluding yourself about things, you're not going to live very long. And that's very practical. So living in the fantasy world meant a very short life, right? So it's not a practical thing to do. And also it was understood that everybody is born with a purpose and that comes from the spirit, not in any sort of denominational way, but, but I mean, that comes from the actual spirit and so we have the obligation to be self-fulfilled. We have the obligation to walk this path of, well, what you call honor, right? And the entire community benefits from it because we are here with the purpose. The purpose serves us and serves the community. It serves our education and enjoyment and betterment. But at the same time, our gift is critical for the community. So if one person in a small community somehow fails to give their gift properly, the entire community suffers. They don't, they, they don't get to enjoy it. They don't get to see the benefits. Now, that model is turned upside down when it comes to the whole domination. And again, I want to attribute it to Stephen Newcomb. It's not my term, it's Stephen's term. Because then the domination system, its entire purpose to not allow that self-fulfillment. Because people who are self-fulfilled are not really going to take it. They might suffer for a little bit, but then they'll find their way out. You know, maybe not in this lifetime, but shortly after, you know, the, in, in a few generations. People are not going to take being dominated if they are together with their own soul, if they are free, if they are not confused. 
which is why maintaining confusion is a key strategy for anybody who is doing domination. They don't want free people. They don't want free spirits. And they can use any word, God, science, public health, pandemic, whatever, climate change. They come up with terms that are suitable for the times. But in effect, they are trying to separate people from the divine because when people are connected to the divine, and again, we all have all ways to think about it. It's not a denominational, denominational term in, in this sense. When people are connected to the divine, it's really hard to mess with us. And if many people are connected to their divine, which is you know our own joint divine as well, it's very, very hard. It, it's impossible. You know What can 10 or 100 super rich people in this world do if people just refuse to have their spirit enslaved? nothing they'll fall off they'll have no energy that's why it's so important for them that we fight with each other that we're confused that we defend our mobster versus their mobster and the paradoxical thing i think about so much is that the answers are not difficult and they're readily available i mean like it's like right here before our noses just the path is difficult and the courage finding courage is difficult and that's the trick because for how many centuries people have been essentially living under domination simply because we think it's inevitable, but it's not. Yeah, I just want to read Keisha's chat here. If you were discussing mainstream views and parroting the acceptable talking points, this channel would have blown up already. Just saying. I read that as a compliment because I read that as look at these four highly intelligent, diverse people discussing compelling things articulately and uh, so i take that as compliment keisha and you know i think this goes to show it should not be that we're constantly pursuing the most attention or the most uh what's the word gratification or sensational yeah where you know going strictly for the sensational will compromise i think whatever it is you're discussing and uh keisha uh follows up it is indeed a compliment so I think that's a testament to all of us. And I think it is also, look, we've we've all encountered challenges trying to engage in these conversations, not not even just publicly like this, but even with people in our in our personal lives. It seems very strange how if you don't identify strictly with one of these labels, um, it, you know, or or this country when it's against this country, if it's there's no room for nuance, it seems anymore. So um I, I, yeah, that's why uh, both you, Matthew, and you, Matthew, and you, Tessa, are very impressive to me and inspire me because it, clearly that hasn't stopped you. And um, hopefully, the idea we we had someone ask for solutions, uh, just broadly speaking, in addition to just talking about our problems. Um, and and I agree. And I think let this be an example of a solution, not to be slowed down by the fact that the establishment isn't upping your views or your discussions that shouldn't be part of the we become you know by influencing people individually one by one and by being role models at a certain point you know i, I think we become the dominant conversation well, but not my dominant conversation mind you <laughs> in terms of in terms of constructive solutions uh, going back to what Tessa said about if you if you're living in a fantasy world in the jungle, you're not going to survive very long. You're going to be eaten by a tiger. And I mean, the equivalent today is if you're living in a fantasy world and you believe 
everything that your public health officials and everything that the government has been saying during, you know, over the course of the past two years, there's there's some real difficulty there. And if you believe that democracy in the West is functioning optimally, well, then you truly are deluded. Um, and and you're not going to survive and democracy won't survive. And democracy very simply is simply, it's demos, people, crati rule. But we have representative democracy. So we vote for people who then are supposed to represent our interests. But we all know that there's this little problem called the revolving door between government and industry. And that when you finish your term in office, you go to work as a consultant at a law firm and you're employed, you're on contract with the same industries you assisted during your term in office. And this is a huge problem. And conflict of interest is an enormous problem. And as people who live in, in, in democracies, we do actually have tools to make a difference. De what the conservatives, going back to this question of, of the political, you know, um, the the name the name game so aligning yourself with one ideology or another the conservatives are going to come in and they're going to say we're there we want to protect your rights and freedoms and and we cannot see the problem is government has been taking them away and so the answer is we need to get rid of many many levels of government Strangely, the forces that have been leveraging government to take away the people's rights and freedoms are corporate, and what they want is less levels of government control on their own interests. So if you remove government regulation from industry, you end up reinforcing the problem we're just, we're living through. Ultimately, if you want, I mean, this is an old proverb from who knows how many different cultures. If you want justice in the state, then work on justice in your community. If you want justice in your community, work on justice in your family. If you want justice in your family, work on justice with your partner. If you want justice with your partner, work on justice in yourself. And it comes back to a fundamental personal responsibility taking. So what we can do, the, the productive, constructive solution is, as far as possible, individuals need to begin taking responsibility by taking active roles within their, within their, their communities, city councils, school boards, and engaging the democratic process and insisting that those who are elected, their, their elected representatives, actually answer their questions. Right now, I know I've written... I mean, Tessa is using her time wisely and she's publishing in Substack. I'm sending dozens of letters to David Eby and Adrian Dix and Bonnie Henry. I'm leaving messages with David Eby, our former attorney general, and with UBC. And all of these institutions, both government and uh, academic, what they've done almost, uh, almost uh, exclusively is ignore my writings. We need to push these people who are supposed to represent our interests. We need to hold them accountable. 
I'm not sure how that can happen, but the answer is not, as the Conservatives say, to dismantle these systems, but to strengthen them and to ensure that they're actually working in the interests of the people they are meant to represent. We need regulation on industry. We have things like the Mount Pauly mine disaster, where there are no consequences. Well, how does that doesn't work for people and it doesn't work for industry? Because if there is no regulation on industry, then the only way any industry can get ahead is by cheating. And that damages everyone. But it also means that now industry, their hands are tied as well. They've got to go ahead with the worst possible, with, right? They have to cut corners. It's not true that get rid of government because, because industry does it better. No, industry aims at profit, right? We want regulation on industry because we want them to behave responsibly. Responsibly how? In a way that is helpful to the community of individuals. Why do we care? Because we're in a basic human situation. Right? And, and we, share, we share a certain basic confrontation with the world, with its scarcity, with impending death. And you can see that we've got a billionaire elite that if they could get other people to die for them, they would. Yeah. But that's not being human. Yeah, so, bring, bring, the, bring the locus of control as close to you as possible, and you are better participating in in the world politic without it being as, as, you know, political perhaps, or, or, or maybe, or maybe it still is. Maybe, maybe it's simply that we all have to um, face the, uh, you know, the difficult reality that there are people um, uh, willing to fight for not just what's theirs, but what's yours and that you have to uh, defend on that. But, but the, the more we can localize the governance, um, the, the better regulatory systems work for us because there is not as big a, a honeypot for people to uh, to come in and use to corrupt people and leverage people. And, and I think, and, and thank you, by the way, well, both Matthews and Liam, thank you for uh, all the very, very thought-provoking and poignant statements. But I also think that the solutions are more internal, meaning that we do, we have to do a special with a great reset, you know, whatever it is and we're attached to it, it's horrifying and it's disgusting and we all, do what we can in every area but i think that like my my slogan and i use this word ironically is to toss out your inner totalitarian if you want to fight totalitarianism because for example i think it's it's a bit naive to think that just by pointing at the villains that they're going to go away somehow because yes we can understand the dynamic and the detail of the you know, upcoming financial reform and the CBDC and the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution. I think it's very, very important to understand that. But that's just the first baby step. The very, very tiny, tiny, tiny first baby step. Because so, okay, so we know that. Are they going to be stopped because we know that or because we said on Twitter that Klaus Schwab sucks? No, I mean, they're just going to continue and they're doing just that. They're pushing forward and forward and forward. So I think that really the battle is on, well, it sounds cheesy, but almost on the energy level. Because if we stop producing the type of energy that ultimately that they relate to, that they, they feed off, then they will have less energy. So if in our own relationships, 
we learn to disagree honorably and we, we can have debates whether people you know call it communism or fascism or whatever they believe in this set of talking points or that if we can connect on the basic human dignity respect free will then it's good we don't have to agree on absolutely every point and by being honorable in our own life in doing the difficult work in our own relationships in our own communities and being humble not a pushover but humble in the spiritual sense i think if many people start practicing that maybe upon realizing that that's really the only way we can defeat the great reset you know again a cheesy phrase but then then they'll be defeated and it's really it's really readily available it's our confusion and our bad habits collective and individual that is keeping us away from defeating them quickly i think i don't know maybe i'm right maybe i'm wrong but that's my feeling about it i think you're definitely onto something and um i think we've we've we have gone zig and zag and we've looked at this from a bunch of different ways and this is exactly what i was hoping for because when you just use the same you know shallow labels over and over again without understanding not only the definitions not only the historical context but also what it means at the human level and then realizing we can sort of just shed these things i think that's really and you've all laid out good solutions so that's the important part now let's we're coming up on an hour and a half let's wrap this thing up and let the wonderful audience go on to what will inevitably be another live stream by someone somewhere else um if they're anything like me um Tessa, we can find you, if I'm not mistaken, let's see if I can do this, at tessafightrobots.com. Yeah, that is my we main website. I'm not really doing much with that right now because I started Substack because Big Tech was censoring my website. Irony, because now they're censoring my Substack. Ah. But, so my most recent writings are on Substack, which is tessa, tessa.substack.com. I also go by Tessa Fights Robots there. So, but that's my most recent. And then if Look you do either... Tessa fights robots, or Tessa makes love, which is my music, my music product, uh, my music project. Uh, then you'll find me. Beautiful. Um, and Matthew, uh, where can people find your work? Where can people go to support the things that you're doing? Where do you want to direct people? Well, I would, I would simply direct people to uh, to have a look at uh, the incredible resources provided by the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. Uh, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. They really have done wonderful work, and uh, I volunteer with them and do a tiny bit of editing there. As far as any work of mine online, um, it it doesn't really apply here. It, there, you might be able to find things on Milton and Spencer or on Henry Corbin and phenomenology of spirit and prophetic philosophy and the teachings of Henry Corbin, but nothing online related to our discussion today. Well, because uh, this, oh man, it's gonna take another while to load. One second, I just wanna share something in particular that you and I, the first thing you and I worked on together, um, if I can pull this up here, we put together this COVID-19 Truth Initiative, which is a, it's an ongoing project with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. The idea is to, to try to outline all of the facts at their, you know, they're, they're, they're easiest to consume level while being scientifically and, and culturally robust. And uh, it's taken a long time to put together. And just to get part one done uh, was very challenging. And that's what this is. But Matthew, in particular, did a tremendous job 
helping me complete the section literally just called the pandemic and um, starting at around uh, around this part, he took this from kind of thoughts that were here, there and everywhere and put them into something that made a lot more sense. And Matthew has this wonderful way of taking new information. And uh, I, 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 you've described it as once it's sort of contextualized, you can then communicate it very effectively. So I want to thank you again for your excellent work on this. And we are working on other projects together that are not yet public. So that's exciting. Is there anything you want to coyly say about that? Well, I'm a great fan of the work that Liam and, uh, and uh, our uh, colleague, uh, Deanna McLeod, uh, they're doing some tremendous work. And I'm very happy to be participating in that. And uh, there's some there's some people perhaps with certain conflicts of interest who maybe should be getting a bit nervous right about now. But enough about that. Thank you both so much. This has been incredible. And um, we're going to need to have you back. There's so much more to explore on this um, and uh, a number of offshoot topics that we could go on forever on. So um, we'll have you back very soon, as soon as schedules allow. Um, thank you again both so much. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Always. Thank you, Liam. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Okay. So, Matthew. Um, I, yeah. I, I do have closing thoughts. Uh, I, I'm going to try to make them brief. Um, it, it, actually, but in, and even before that, it, it's so awesome to run a podcast and have so many amazing people come to you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's just, that's the best part about this. But, um, uh, you know, closing thought, um, I, I really enjoyed this conversation, you know, uh, I, spirituality, um, you know, being an individual, you know, that boundary is at you, right? Bringing, you know, recognizing that locus of control over you, um, that, that's fundamental to participation in, in this giant game of reality. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't mean game uh, to, to minimize it in any way. Um, also, you know, we talked about solutions and what Tessa said is this baby step um, problem identification. There's problem identification solution. Problem identification, therefore, becomes part of the solution. And what we are what we're doing, uh, what a lot of people are doing in our community is sort of um, uh, communicating what the problems really are or bringing more attention, more awareness to them. And and, you know, what, what we talked about with people, you know, going into a fantasy land and being picked off by tigers in the jungle or whatever, we do need to present, prevent that, right? We, we do need to, the larger our network, the more powerful our network. And for the, uh, for the mathematician crowd out there, uh, for my friends, uh, um, think of, uh, or, or economics friends, think of Metcalf's law. The larger a network, the more powerful, and, and and it's powerful by a greater degree than even a linear degree. The the you know the the power of the network is in proportion to the square of the number of people in the network. So you double the number of people in the network, you quadruple your power. If we successfully communicate the problem identification at, at a critical moment like this, then we um, we do a great deal to push back against the levers that have developed the psychological warfare, the behavioral economics, um, the nudge units, you know, all of those things. Uh, and, you know, that is, that is a gigantic leap toward improving the world, I think. So, uh, and it's great that we had two excellent guests to, you know, help us 
uh, move along that path. Very well said. Just a couple of last things before I let you go, Matthew. Um, Keisha Nelson wonderfully tipped $20 on Rockfin and said, I won't send a super chat on YouTube. Totally understandable. But I will send a tip in Rockfin. Lol, by the way, love the news format you're doing now. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. So that is incredible. Thank you for uh, for supporting us. This is how we stay online. Um, you hear creators say it all the time. In fact, I had someone tell us not to call ourselves creators. I don't know what the better... Uh, community members but thank you keisha and i also thought and we don't we don't have a lot of extra time today so i'm not going to dive in too deep but i thought it might be good to because we get so many comments we have such an engaged community um we we, we wind up racking up comments on youtube rumble um etc that that neither you or i uh, get to and we do our best um but i wanted to just pull up a couple to see if we could very quickly address them first of all has Cody Porter published his Substack uh, from your discussion with him a couple weeks ago? I think he just did publish a Substack article. Um, and in fact, uh, I, I saw it come through my email, so I opened it up in the browser, but I haven't had a chance to read it. Okay, but that's good. So there is a link, so we'll make sure to put that on the original video. Um, and then a second thing, and we'll leave it at this today. Uh, Rouge Baba commented on your um, the whole story of the DMED um, database situation said, Matthew, I'd be very interested in hearing more about your childhood. Near the end of the episode, you briefly mentioned growing up in what you describe as a, quote, sort of quasi-cult, and the comment goes on. What do you, what, what, what are your, uh, is that something you would cover in more detail? Um, possibly. I mean, it, uh, it, it's it's traumatic circumstances. Um, and and it, it's very complex. There, there are sort of things that I, uh, it, it, it almost has to be a book to, to be worth talking about. But um, I, I do want to address a certain part of it because I think it relates to where we are now, but uh, I'll, maybe I'll do that in the live stream one day. Yeah, and certainly you, it, the audience will understand the, the the difficult nature of addressing this stuff, especially when it's so personal. So I, I wouldn't say there's any pressure on you to do so, but I just wanted to let you know there was some interest there. And then a whole lot of thank yous. A lot of people are thanking, particularly following the DMED video. You really did lay it out in a way that made a lot of sense. Um, and I know it won't be the last time you lay it out. Um, and then the conversation with Mark, which worked this time, um, was also very informative. Yeah, it was a great conversation. I, I want to try to organize a roundtable with people who he hasn't sold on his idea and, you know, um, give them a chance to sell each other on different ideas. But, you know, try to put together a very friendly and, and uh, you know, well-informed roundtable sometime, sometime soon. That's a great idea. Okay, well, let's wrap it up for today. Thank you all so much. As we've already said, best way to support the show, first of all, just watch. Second of all, you can subscribe to Rounding the Earth at roundingtheearth.substack.com. If you uh, are able to become a paid subscriber, it is the cornerstone. It's it's the core uh, piece of media that generates Rounding the Earth and that spins off all these other wonderful multimedia format discussions. And you can also send a super chat on YouTube, a rumble rant on Rumble, and a direct tip on Rockfin. And we will be back uh, at least this Friday, potentially even sooner, for an episode of Rounding the News. I have been Liam Sturgis, and we will see you later. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Mm -hmm.